Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Well, I just wanted you ladies to know that I have my equivalent of a mimosa, which is my 2% reduced fat chocolate milk box <laughs> that I will be drinking. I don't know if you guys have any libations or beverages this evening. Um, a little bit of wine for me. I made a gin and tonic, um, but I did get into chocolate milk recently. Did you know it's amazing <laughs> with coffee, by the way? Look, chocolate milk is about as strong as I go. Wow. Yeah. I like how so, you said you were getting into chocolate milk as if it was like a new discovery. <laughs> that is true. Totally missed it when I was nine. However, in my 20s, <laughs> boy, it's coming on strong. Well, I haven't had it in like like 15 years. You can get other flavors of milk thanks to Nesquik. You've got the banana milk. You've got strawberry milk. You've got some root beer milk, which, believe it or not, is actually quite delish. What? I have not yeah. heard of root beer milk. Yeah, I've heard strawberry of... milk. It's basically like drinking, you know, a root beer float. Well, <laughs> I'm going to have to look into this. Oh, my yeah. God. Mine's blown, right? Yeah, this is very exciting. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we learned something already. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about My Fair Lady with Christine and Cindy from the podcast Bottomless Broadway. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Hello. Now, your how would you describe your podcast? Ooh, ooh, For me. those who may not have heard. <laughs> okay. Basically, Christine does a lot of research in her childhood, knows everything about <laughs> Broadway. And then we do this podcast where she's very informative and I make snarky remarks about costumes. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Christine, how, did you, how are you such an expert? Um, in college, I had this roommate who he was super into like physics and stuff to the point where he would read Wikipedia articles on it, like on a specific wow. topic until he understood it and then like follow one of the links to another topic and then like rinse and repeat. And I was sure. like, wow, what a nerd. Until I realized <laughs> I started doing the same thing with musical theater. Like, I don't know. We like, all have our filter. <laughs> whenever I watch something, like I was like reading recaps or reviews of it. And then normally with, you know, something like a revival, then you have the whole production history that you kind of have to, like, pay homage to. And so then I end up on the Wikipedia page for it to see, like, oh, what were the critics like when it first came out? And, like, how did it get to Broadway? How did it get to, like, where it is now? All of that. So then just, you know, it's kind of a, a rabbit hole that you go down if you're me. And Cindy, when did you learn this about your friend that she had such a a close obsession with the musical theater? Honestly, probably when we both moved to New York. I was, like, not a big childhood theater goer. I only got into it when I spent seven months in London and, and had zero friends. And I was like, what's a cool thing to do alone? So I basically watched, like, four movies a week and went to three Broadway shows or West End shows. Yes. And then I literally racked up, like, 25 shows in like two and a half months or something like that. Oh, um, hot dang. 
West End is really cheap, though, so it's easy to do. Like, because that government subsidizes <laughs> those theater tickets. Yeah. I, I love got, it. I bought Day Of, not like Rush, but just like normal sure. Day Of Wicked tickets in the front row for 30 pounds. Um, and that was like, that's that was typical. Like I did that for so many shows. So That's so great. It was amazing. What would you say as, you know, an American who spent a lot of time going to the West End, what would you say the biggest difference you've noticed between West End shows and New York or I guess even just American shows in general? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's not really about like the show itself, but like the overall atmosphere, I think like because tickets are less expensive in London, people treat it as more of like an average Friday night instead of like kind of an event, which oh, Christine and I don't treat it like an event because we see every single show that graces Broadway. <laughs> It's actually embarrassing because sometimes we'll go to like Popeye's and then hit up a theater. Um, <laughs> I saw a show. You're with- classy, <laughs> exactly. And I saw a show with the coworker, and he was like, "Let's let's do that pre-theater dinner. Let's show up half an hour before the show starts, read our playbill." And I was like, "We don't do that. We just eat fried chicken and go to a theater." Thank you. And then there's a lot of like open mics and piano bars in their massive theater district area. Um, So it's really easy to just like go out of a show, like get out of a show and then hit up a piano bar and start belting immediately Um, because like everything in the area is very themed. And I know we have piano bars in Hell's Kitchen and stuff, but like in London, it's very easy to get like everyone singing. I'm so grateful that you're doing this episode with me because, number one, you offered to cover My Fair Lady. I didn't even have to convince you to do so. (laughs) And number two, I would never want to cover this musical without the presence of females, cis or otherwise. So to have two makes it doubly exciting. So thank you. Thank you. And why on earth do you want to cover My Fair Lady? Well, we started our podcast just in time to miss that season. Because you guys cover the shows that you've seen, like, during the season. You're, like, a real-time source <laughs> of Broadway theater. Att- yeah, we yeah. try to be, like, season-long Tony predictors, basically. Right? Okay, that's good. I like that brand. <laughs> Got a little bit thrown off our game this year, but... Right. <laughs> Go well, figure. I mean, so did the rest of Broadway, so I think we're, we're holding up. Yeah, okay. you're in good company. Okay, so you guys started the podcast after you had seen... The Revival of My Fair Lady. Had you Did you know the musical before you saw The Revival? I'm going to guess yes for Christine because she's a total Broadway nerd. Cindy, I'm going to say yes because you probably sang a couple songs at a pub in London. Oh my God, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you know us so well already. It totally goes before that, but I definitely got drunk and sang and could have danced all night to a lot of applause at a piano bar in London. Um, but so the reason why I did that is because when I was a kid and I took some vocal lessons, this was one of the songs that my vocal teacher wanted me to sing. Ooh, that's an adventurous <laughs> uh, teacher. She's like, beginner. All right, here we go. Let's start with I could have danced all night. No, she was intense. She had me sing. Um, oh, my God. What's that? What's that Gershwin musical? That's Summertime? super hot. Summertime. That's not the musical. That's the song, right? But sure. Yeah, yeah. Poor Dean Best. She also had me sing Summertime. She was intense. But Wow. <laughs> so I didn't know what My Fair Lady was about at all. And the only like 
Audrey Hepburn movie that I knew was Roman Holiday. So I assumed it was very similar. because It's not similar at all. However, like I could have danced all night, could totally be in Roman Holiday instead. And it's probably the only only song in My Fair Lady that I think would ever fit in there. Um, It was years later before I actually saw the movie and I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. So I was like, okay, cool, whatever. I think it's just one of those old movies I'm supposed to like, like Casablanca or All About Eve. <laughs> Whoa, hold on. Wait, I don't think I can let that go. <laughs> do you not like All About Eve? No, I do. I do. Okay. Oh I my gosh. I don't I'm sorry. I about Casablanca though, because um, I saw it in black and white on a rooftop also in London and I was cold. So mm, <laughs> I don't yeah. remember it. Yeah, so it honestly wasn't until the revival that I actually digested the plot and how crazy it is. And Christine? Yeah, I saw the movie earlier on. My mom loves musicals and movie musicals. And I have this memory of like, I think we were on vacation because it was definitely in a hotel where you watched this musical. That's a long movie to watch in a hotel room. I think we actually took like a day's intermission. Because, you know, they have that, like, helpful intermission part. <laughs> They're like, they sure do. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we did the same with Gone with the Wind. We watched that across, like, three or four days. Yeah. You got a smart mom. And, yeah, I, I liked it. I don't think it made a huge impression on me. And then, you know, it was later on when I was thinking about it, when this revival rolled around, and I was like, you know, that's kind of a, a weird dynamic to have because it's played as a romance to so many people and, like, so many people consider it a romance that yeah. but if you actually think about it it's not a great one that's what's so interesting about this show and i can't wait to talk about it is the identity crisis that it's gone through from its inception like from the very first time it was performed even as a play before it got turned into a musical it's had this identity crisis that it's been fighting yeah. for me my fair lady was important for one and one reason only the scene at the ascot races because you got all of those black and white costumes, um, and then it ends with Audrey Hepburn yelling, "Come on, Dova, move your blooming arse!" Like that's <laughs> that was like the reason for the movie to exist in my eyes. <laughs> I mean, out of everything, that seems like a pretty good scene to have as your favorite. Thank you. It's a great uh, scene in the movie, so <laughs> isn't it? It's also it's kind like of... so still and stilted. Did you see the Lincoln Center one? I did not. Okay, well, just sidebar. Um, I'm pretty sure Ascot Gavat is like the main reason they want costume. <laughs> was it just fantastic? Yeah, it was like um, like a periwinkle lavender across the board. <sighs> and they were like backlit by, I'm remembering it as sunset colors, but I don't know if that's actually true. But I'm not sure. They were definitely silhouetted when they like first entered the scene, I think. And then they like moved forward and you could see their actual costumes. I'm going to have to look up pictures now. That sounds gorgeous. When was that? 2018? Yeah. Yep. So 2018 was certainly not the beginning of the Me Too movement, but it was when the hashtag really started exploding, when all of the Weinstein problems started surfacing. And it really seemed to be this turning point in both, well, I guess in all of media. And then right at that moment, Broadway announced that it was going to be presenting revivals of Carousel and My Fair Lady. And I went, what? (laughs) Because it just seemed a little little tone deaf. Uh, There are many people who feel like the My Fair Lady revival 
was worthy of the Me Too movement, of this new outlook in terms of how women are portrayed in media. Did you feel like Carousel was? Carousel was a little, it was my first experience with Carousel. I had no clue what the story was at intermission. Me and my friend were like basically play, placing bets on who was going to die. And I got it wrong. You're like somebody's got to go. <laughs> You're definitely like someone's <laughs> dying. But I got it wrong. I've thought about it a lot because I love the music for Carousel. It's uh, stunning. Absolutely yeah. stunning. And I don't know if Carousel can be fixed, like quote unquote fixed, because mm-hmm. unless you just actually massively change the lines and change who the characters are. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the the famous line is like, oh, he slapped me, but it it felt like a kiss. Um, right. And so it, it seems like they're forgiving domestic abuse. At the end of the day, your ingenue is a battered woman and we're given a sympathetic view of the abuser. Yeah. And, and they cut some songs, which like listening to them later, I don't even know if those cut songs actually helped in the whole feminist retelling supposedly of this story and I didn't see it even though I had every opportunity to and I kind of regret it because Christine likes it but after Carol King and Waitress I didn't feel like seeing another Jesse Mueller musical where she's in an abusive relationship <laughs> so Fair enough. I skipped it I'm a big Rodgers and Hammerstein fan so I do I do see the importance of Carousel, but I also see the importance of knowing when and when not to produce it. And I just wasn't sure that then was the right time. Yeah. And also with producing it with a black man playing your lead who is abusive, I felt like that was a little tone deaf, maybe like sure the optics of it just also seemed a little weird to me. I agree with you. So then in in terms of My Fair Lady, if I had to tell you what My Fair Lady was about, I would have said it's the story of a poor Cockney girl who becomes the basis of a bet of an upper-class linguist to try and fix her, to make her appear more upper-class by changing the way she speaks. They're polar opposites, and then by the end, they fall in love. Like, truly, that's how I would have explained the show. When the original play, which My Fair Lady is based on, which is called Pygmalion, it was written by George Bernard Shaw. When it was first written, he actually had to go back and fix the play after it had opened because he found the actors who were playing Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle kept inching their way toward some sort of romance at the end. And that isn't what he wanted. So he purposely went back and, you know, wrote things and fixed the actors and had to keep telling them, no, you're not falling in love. This is not what that story, this story is. And like, and Shaw's sequel slash epilogue, whatever, is actually pretty interesting to read. He kind of explains the thinking behind each of them and how like men who are very accomplished want women who are like below their stature so they can continue feeling accomplished. And Eliza would have been too much a a threat to Higgins. And he like explains the whole psychology behind it. Wow. So from the get-go, from the from the ground up, this story has been battling the chemistry of these two characters, trying to figure out are they a nemesis? Is it a spark that's supposed to lead to a romance? Um do you guys know what Pygmalion means? I I looked this up. I find it so fascinating. Yes. So did I. <laughs> 
Fantastic. <laughs> Do you want to share with the with the listeners? Oh man, are we going back to like Greek mythology? Yes, exactly. Okay, so there's this like poet who doesn't think the perfect woman exists. He, right, he kind of sees no purpose in women, really. He makes a sculpture that he thinks is like the perfect girl and then he like prays to Athena or someone to bring her to life. Yeah. And then she does. Right. And so, and that sculptor, that poet, his name was Pygmalion. And so George Bernard Shaw, the show is not about that Greek myth. And mm-hmm. yet the the name Pygmalion is certainly reflective of what's going on in this story. And it actually helped me to kind of figure out what his intention was. You've got a lead character who doesn't really understand the importance of women or what makes them beautiful unless he is in charge of every single detail. Shaw was a big feminist at the time. So I think that's why he felt so strongly about the two of them not being together, which I have so many thoughts about. But then I think, was it like, I don't know if either of you know this, probably somewhere, um, like the producer or the director or someone of the Pygmalion film that like Shaw greenlighted was like, I also want to make this into a musical. Yeah. Yeah. So the producer of the film decided that he wanted to make a musical out of it. He first approaches Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. They give it a go and it doesn't go well. They're like, this show can't be musicalized. We're not doing it. And then after they pass, Lerner and Lowe pick it up. Now, this is our first Lerner and Lowe show that we're talking about here on the podcast. So uh, let's go through these composers really fast. Alan J. Lerner, who wrote the book and the lyrics, based on this play by George Bernard Shaw, is a famous writer. He's kind of a collegiate guy like Cole Porter and even Richard Rogers, very Ivy League American. And then he has a writing partner by the name of Frederick Lowe, who was born in Germany. He's much more of a, a lowly immigrant to America. And these two, as lyricist and composer respectively, create a really solid partnership in musical theater, having their first big hit with Brigadoon. Then they write Paint Your Wagon. I I think probably their biggest hit easily came in the 1950s with My Fair Lady. So they only were able to do this because (laughs) Rodgers and Hammerstein passed on it first. But once they did gobble it up and turn it into something, it becomes the biggest hit of the 1950s. I believe it ran... 2,700 performances. Crazy, crazy long. Yeah, Yeah. it was almost seven years, which even today is like a fairly respectable run. So back then, insane. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least, right? Now, also in that year, here were the other uh, shows that got nominated for Best Musical that year. Are you ready? Yep. We got Bells Are Ringing, Adorable. I think that's so cute. Do you know Bells Are Ringing? I know one song. <laughs> okay. Which one do you know? Um, Party's over? Perfect Relationship. Oh, cute. Yeah. It is it's a, a great song. score. It's Julie Stein, Gypsy, Funny Girl. Can't write a bad score. It's yeah. great. Then you got Candide, yep. Leonard Bernstein, of course, My Fair Lady, and then The Most Happy Fella. So that is a pretty amazing season of musicals in 1957. You got Julie Stein, Leonard Bernstein, Lerner and Lowe, and Frank Lesser all in one season. That's pretty fantastic. My Fair Lady wins pretty much everything. 
except for Best Actress. Now, the leads in My Fair Lady on Broadway originally were Rex Harrison and Quan Julie Andrews. We on the podcast referred to her as a Quan because she's not actually a queen. She's a Quan. Um, <laughs> anyway, that being said, Julie Andrews did not win a Tony Award for My Fair Lady, which is crazy. I think we think of Eliza Doolittle as being this iconic role in musical theater, and for sure it is, and yet it has never won an actress a Tony Award. You know that the Tony is the only thing that Julie Andrews is missing from an EGOT? Like, of all things. I of all things. I not expect that. It probably was going to be Victor Victoria. Turned it down. Now, I know on your podcast, you do this thing called the five word review, (laughs) which is you like sum up your review of the show in five words. And so I was trying to think about what my five word review would be for My Fair Lady. And I think it is Eliza never won a Tony. (laughs) Because (laughs) like that is kind of how I feel about the show. It is both iconic and yet somehow at the end of the day, Eliza gets overlooked. Who she is in the beginning and who she is at the end is kind of the same. She just talks better by the end of the show. Yeah, she doesn't have that like classic ingenue arc. She doesn't fall in love. She doesn't, I mean, I guess like Higgins, quote unquote, saves her from the streets, but then kind of makes her life worse. So it's not your typical leading female role, especially of the time. I've read enough musical theater textbooks to know that there are many scholars out there who believe that My Fair Lady is a perfect musical, simply in terms of its construction and its character development, etc. And yet, I am not sure that you can call this show a perfect musical if you have to work so hard to completely redefine it in 2020, you know? I guess, like, minor spoiler alert for the revival version, if you... Are willing to hear no worries this. yeah um, please so at the end it's really interesting how they do the ending and also i think part of it helped that i mean eliza's supposed to be 20 and higgins is supposed to be like 40 or something but they did cast like kind of equal ages for both actors so it it did let you see them more on equal standing but at the end when eliza comes back he says his line where are my slippers um yeah go get go get my slippers yeah. And and she looks at him and like I think she might like pat him on the cheek a bit or something. And then she exits through the front of the stage. So she goes downstage, like breaking the fourth wall and then walks out through the aisle in the audience. And that's the end of the show. Um, Interesting. And he like kind of smiles at her, I think, as she's doing this. And so I saw that as either it's it all happened in his mind, like he's imagining her coming back and then realizing that she doesn't need him and that, you know, she's become independent. Or if it does, like, kind of actually happen, it's also him just sort of being proud of what he's created. I mean, yeah. So I guess, like, when we were talking, Christine felt like his happy ending is that he succeeded in, like, quote-unquote, creating Eliza Doolittle. Yeah, Um, I totally buy that. And... Honestly, like My Fair Lady slash Pygmalion is so common in rom-coms, like a ton of crappy teenage movies like She's All That, John Tucker Must Die are about- Oh my gosh, you're speaking, you're speaking my language, Cindy. (laughs) It's about like the guy or at least people shaping this perfect girl for him. 
Yeah. And like the happy ending is supposed to be them getting together. And like, if she doesn't, then it breaks his heart. So I feel like he was upset that she left. <laughs> yeah, it's so ambiguous. Like if you're going to go ambiguous with this ending, then you have to be okay with what's currently happening in this episode, which is <laughs> three different perspectives and kind of feelings about what it could be. And I'm just not entirely sure that a, that a musical written in 1957 that has been interpreted one way for so long can all of a sudden make an, make an about face and, and become this really ambiguous musical. I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of lost for words here. I mean, that's what I personally like about revivals is like if you get the right director – they can show mm-hmm. a completely different side to things. Um, it's actually why I liked the most recent West Side Story as well, which I know had very mixed reviews. And this was so subtle. Like Oklahoma, the recent Oklahoma revival like brags about how it doesn't change a word. Like, you know, everything's there, but all of a sudden you're exposing the dark grittiness. But I feel like this My Fair Lady, it doesn't quite get as much credit for doing essentially the same thing that Oklahoma does where it reveals like maybe different layers without necessarily changing a word of the actual show. Um, Though also to like bring it back to your comment about how, you know, a lot of people have called this a perfect musical, which I've heard also many times. Mm -hmm. And like my first point about that is I've actually also heard a lot of people who feel like it's inferior to the play, which I can definitely see because it does, you know, romanticize it. And so it's almost peculiar how how many people find it like a perfect musical and then my second point about that is that if you actually look at the songs none of the songs really drive the plot they're all sort of like character let's see what they're thinking songs um Mm -hmm. and part of it was because they they stuck to a lot of shaw's original text which is actually pretty cool like if you read the actual play you're like (laughs) i recognize these lines Um, For sure. So I guess they didn't really have much storytelling to do with the songs because it was already all there in the text. So it's more like, how do we mine these characters um, for things for them to sing about? It makes me wonder if that's where Rodgers and Hammerstein were like, yeah, no, thanks. You know, because they weren't so interested in just writing a a lot of recitative about figuring out what's going on inside their brains. Yeah. So many people hold it up as like this ideal of a perfect musical but I'm like but it's not even that integrated like not a typical musical that that's a that's a very good point do you mind if we actually talk through the show because I think a lot of these interesting things will come up as we talk about it yeah so the show opens and we immediately meet all of our main characters for the most part we meet professor henry higgins who is a famous linguist He comes in contact with another famous linguist by the name of Colonel Pickering, and they are outside. Is it Covenant Gardens? Is that what it's called? I think it's just Covent. Yes, Covent. Covent, Where there are a lot of, how would you call them? They're not like homeless. They're maybe like a lower class of person. Yeah. It all feels so um, insensitive to say it in those terms. (laughs) I think... I think one of the major differences, and Cindy, you can correct me here because uh, you have lived in England, but 
One of the big differences between America and England is that for the most part, for most of our history, the class system is less defined than it is in England, historically speaking. I don't know if that's still the case, but certainly in the past, you had, you know, Downton Abbey. And then, you you know, you had a very clear line between upstairs and downstairs. You had servants. And then kind of even below those servants were people who couldn't even get hired and were not necessarily living in the streets, but certainly working in the streets. In the case of Eliza Doolittle, trying to sell flowers. They have a, a very unrefined way of speaking. And so the first song is called Why Can't the English That's talk sung by Henry Higgins, like you said, using a lot of the original lines from from Shaw. But it's basically this this rich linguist guy complaining, why can't anyone speak English correctly? Now, I can't help but notice that we do this every generation. Every generation, we decide that the world is coming to an end because the younger generation can't speak correctly. Have you noticed this? Um. Now that you've mentioned it, yes. I mean, every single time, like even you look back hundreds and hundreds of years ago and it's like people can't write in calligraphy anymore. We're <laughs> the world is coming to an end. Even to nowadays we're like people are saying LOL and or saying like too much. I do it all the time and I try and edit a few out every episode just to like keep people off my back. Do that too. But um <laughs> oh, yeah. My dad's always like, acronyms are for morons. Maybe we're just well, efficient. It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> there is no time, dad. <laughs> yeah. But then the other thing is Eliza Doolittle's accent is a Cockney accent, which exists to this day. And when I was interning in London, I literally had um, like most of my coworkers were either like Scottish and Irish or had like your American movie Brit posh accent. And then we had another intern that had a Cockney accent and people actually did like lightly joke slash make fun of him for it. So it like low key exists and Mm. it's really unsettling in the context of this because he's not really teaching her how to speak properly. He's teaching her how to speak in a posh accent, which would be like if I showed up to Texas and was like, hello, you're going to speak with a Beverly Hill Valley Girl accent today. Mm -hmm. Let me teach you how. In the song, Why Can't the English, the very first line is, look at her, a prisoner of the gutters, condemned by every syllable she utters. By rights, she should be taken out and hung for the cold-blooded murder of the English tongue. Now, great rhymes. However, that is not grammatically correct. (laughs) (laughs) technically it should be by rights she should be taken out and hanged for the cold-blooded murder of the english tongue i just think it's fascinating that one of the first things that we hear out of henry higgins mouth is grammatically incorrect and apparently (laughs) alan j Lerner tried to come up with something that was correct but he just liked the rhyme too much and he kept it and he thought that nobody would notice and he said that at the opening night party, he had somebody come and say, um, you know, <laughs> I think it was Noel Coward. <laughs> you're right. You're right. It was Noel Coward of all people. <laughs> he was like, you know, character or rhyme. I'm going to pick the rhyme over the character. Exactly. That that actually goes to show what he thinks of American audiences. <laughs> <laughs> 
also that we haven't been speaking English for years. Exactly. <laughs> Now, I guess this also leads to another greater conversation, which is how much of this is true and how much of this needs to be true in terms of a professional, a successful person speaking a certain way in order to be taken seriously. Where do you all stand on that? Realistically, I think it's very true. And you you hear a lot about code switching and a lot of the things that minorities in particular have to do to be able to sort of break through certain like career boundaries and just in general. Um, so I think it it's still very real in today's society. Like ideally, people would be able to speak however they wanted. And, and, and I guess part of it is because this is like the English that is taught in schools. Like if you grow up in America or in England, you're taught to speak a certain way. Whereas if you're an right. immigrant or, you know, you learn English as a second language, then there's always at least a trace of an accent. And so sure. there's that inherent bias in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's part of like your presentation, which you know, like is always important, but like historically society has always defined good presentation in like a pretty strict and arbitrary way. In the song, isn't he like, or maybe it's another one where he's like, it's her accent that condemns her to this crappy life. It's not mm -hmm. because she dresses in rags and has mud on her face, which is a flat out lie. <laughs> it's not true. But it's also kind of like what came first, right? What do you mean? Well, I, I think what he's saying is that he's asking the question, is it a, a chicken or the egg type situation where oh. is it the education that has kept her poor or is it that she's poor that has kept her from being educated? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, like today, both equally contribute to your presentation of yourself, which definitely affects how successful you are. Like you hear statistics that like, women who wear makeup to work make like $10,000 more or whatever than women who don't. Um, so on average, so like, yeah. like Which I, means that you should be able to write off your makeup in, in taxes as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That right. would be amazing. <laughs> It's a business expense. Exactly. Seriously, with those kinds of statistics, yeah. I'm already mad that we don't supply like, if, if we supply toilet paper in public restrooms, then we should be supplying feminine hygiene products as well. I don't know why you all have to buy those things. Thank you. <laughs> <That is. laughs> They only just went on the list that you can buy it using like a flex spending account that just happened like this year. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't use flex spending from your health insurance to get like feminine hygiene before this year. Oh, that's so upsetting. I'm sorry, ladies. That's, that's <laughs> rotten. I enjoy buying mine. I have a very fancy monthly subscription and everyone laughs about it. But if there's anything to get a monthly subscription for, it should be this. <laughs> That's cool. They come like individually packaged and smelling like lilacs or something. Yeah, they are 100% organic cotton and they come every month in a little leather pouch. Oh. <gasps> That's adorable. <laughs> Thanks. It's a really exciting package to get. You you might need to send us a photo for the Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> <I will>. um, <clears throat> okay. After Why Can't the English, Eliza and her, you know, her friends there at Covent Garden, 
the conversation turns to what it would be like to be living a different life, or in other words, a, a more wealthy life. And Eliza sings Wouldn't It Be Loverly, which is one of the more famous tunes of the show, which brings me to this book called, I don't know if either of you have read it. It's called The Secret Life of the American Musical. Yes. It's really great. That's that's I I think I must have told Cindy about this book, but I I keep talking about it. There are some really great things in it, and it's written by this guy named Jack Vertel. I'm guessing that's how you say his last name. Something like that. And one of the things that he talks about in terms of the construction of My Fair Lady, and this goes to our our conversation about whether or not it's a well-written show, is that right from the get-go, we have two polar opposite characters, and yet we know very clearly what they want. Yeah. One is from kind of a cynical, judgmental point of view. Uh, Henry Higgins wants everyone to talk like him because he thinks the world would be better. And Eliza wants a better life. And the amazing thing about this show, and this probably goes a lot to George Bernard Shaw, is that these two characters have such well-defined desires that are not the same, and yet they need each other in order to fulfill them. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what is probably the best constructed part of this show is that as an audience, we can get behind Henry Higgins because he's ridiculous and, <laughs> and you know, witty. And we can get behind Eliza because she's earnest and loverly and then see them go on their journey together in order to get what they want. But when you break it down like that, what they want or at least what they they say they want at this point doesn't involve a romance and that is that's pretty that's pretty impressive for a musical especially from the 1950s yeah. now eliza has a father named alfred p doolittle and he's a father of the year um, <laughs> always drunk uh, Eliza seems to kind of always be cleaning up his messes yeah. and yet also seems to be forgotten by him. Like he doesn't seem to care about her very much. I think he's just like, my daughter will come and give me money. It is like her duty. And right. I don't have to do and, anything. And and later on, I think he even tells Henry Higgins something like, yeah, if she, you know, misbehaves, just give her a, give her a smack. And she'll be better. And it's like, well, he would only say that if that has worked for him in the past. However, he tends to be an audience favorite because he has these two really uh, jaunty songs with a little bit of luck and then get me to the church on time in the second act. The best thing I have to say about Alfred P. Doolittle is a a little story, if you'll indulge me. Mm -hmm. I have a dear friend by the name of Joe Hart from Los Angeles, and this is a shout out to him. Several years ago, he had a health scare I remember I went over to his house and we were like chatting on his porch and kind of eating and talking. And he was telling me about some of like some of the Broadway shows that he had been in. He was in Bonnie and Clyde. He was in, I think, The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public. And he was saying, you know, he would love to stick around here on Earth so he could get one more show and it would be even better if it was a hit. And then literally like a year and a half later, He was in remission from this illness on stage at Lincoln Center covering Alfred P. Doolittle. And I just, it it literally warms my heart whenever I think about that, that he was able to like push through whatever crap his life gave him physically and then end up in New York 
in in a great show, kind of living the dream. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Right. Eliza, having heard Henry Higgins talk to to Colonel Pickering about all of this language stuff, shows up to his house to ask for some lessons in speech so that she can get a job. She just wants to be an assistant in a florist shop. Like that's really, that's her goal. So she shows up in, you know, her rags and this is Henry Higgins. She's all that moment as, uh, as Cindy said, his opportunity to give her a big makeover. (laughs) Thus begins this instruction, this education and it comes from a very misogynistic man, and she's a very stubborn woman. And it's this battle of the sexes seeing how how on earth is he going to teach her and how on earth is she going to learn from him when they are who they are. Um, I think it's also interesting how her I Want song, Wouldn't It Be Lovely, it talks about just, you know, being warm being like inside being able to eat chocolates like all that and she does get that like almost immediately um true but now she has to deal with this guy (laughs) (laughs) so it's like all right well you got all the things you wanted but is it worth all this stuff which i mean she obviously decides it is because she continues with lessons and everything but yeah. Um, but yeah, like she gets her wants pretty quickly. Did either of you ever have a teacher that was horrible and yet you were really grateful for what you learned from them? I don't know. Did you ever have a Henry Higgins? Hmm. I got along with all my horrible teachers. <laughs> like, Oh, so you had horrible teachers and you got along with them. I, like I didn't think they were horrible. They were just like a little notorious in the school. But mm. I feel like as a teenager, I was so done with myself that... I was pretty hard to offend. So (laughs) (laughs) So I just dealt with them. What did you guys study? What did you ladies study? I studied business and music industry, neither of which I am actually working in. So that was zero for two. That's hilarious. And Christine? And I studied computer science, which is a degree I'm actually using. So that's amazing. <laughs> I'm a software engineer. Um, and my office is in Midtown, which is super convenient for nice. purposes. Yeah. And I also work in tech, but not as an engineer, as a product owner. And my office used to be in Midtown, but now it's on freaking 10th Ave. And it takes a million years to get to work. <laughs> Shoot. Which is actually, so to be honest, it's probably the only reason why I walk because it's so far from every single subway station that it takes like 25 minutes of walking for me to get to work and then 25 minutes of walking for me to get back. Oh. And now that I'm working from home, I'm just a potato. <laughs> <laughs> so... The education is going forth. Uh, the big breakthrough comes right before the rain in Spain, right? They've been just trying like crazy to get her to break out of this accent. And she finally says the phrase, the rain in Spain. Oh, uh, what is it? The rain. <laughs> it stays <laughs> the mainly rain in on Spain the plains. stays mainly in the plains, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
and and she says it perfectly for the first time. And by George, she's got it. And they celebrate. And they're so excited. Now they have to go to bed, but Eliza can't go to bed. And so she sings, I could have danced all night. Now, from what I understand, the way that this was staged in the revival is that she was celebrating a moment of education. It's like that. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like there have been points in my education when I actively thirsted for knowledge. I caught wind of something really inspiring. And then like I literally couldn't drink in the knowledge fast enough. Mm-hmm. And it seems like this number tried to be that moment for Eliza where she has this breakthrough and now she wants to just keep going and she can't stop. And she wants to, you know, like spend all night reading under a blanket with a flashlight, you know, that sort of thing. Um, And yet the lyric for I could have danced all night is I only know when he began to dance with me, you know, it, it becomes about him. And so it feels hard to, to flip the script on that number a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why I think like, she's excited with her breakthrough is because this is her first solo that's in her fancy new accent. So she's like prancing herself to bed with her perfect accent excited. And she's like, Oh, that's cute. I I like that. That's (laughs) great. I really, I buy that. I totally buy that. (laughs) Thanks. Also the rain in Spain has been stuck in my head all day. (laughs) It's surprisingly catchy. (laughs) I also want to say, how is it socially acceptable that three full-grown human beings are dancing and imitating bullfighting at 3 a.m. because one person pronounced a word correctly? And finally, have either of you guys heard the rock cover of this in Glee? Stop. Now. (laughs) Get out of here. Are you serious? Yes. So the boys, they're studying for geography and then... And then one guy is like, think about it. Where does the rain mainly fall in Spain? And one guy's like, the mountains? And he's like, no, 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 listen to me. Where does the rain mainly fall in Spain? And then Punk is like, the plains! And then they freak out and all get on their guitars and start jamming. Oh my gosh. that I That's hilarious and horrifying. And hold on, I need to finish my chocolate milk. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, about this song about I could have danced all night. I was thinking that it could be in the book, The Secret Life of American Musical kind of talks about this where it's like she gets it right after the first time he's nice to her. And Mm. up until then, he's been like very abusive to the point of like discomfort almost. And so like, and he's finally nice to her. He gives this like really pretty little speech of about how like great the English language is. So I see that as like, he's finally maybe proud of her. And Mm. she has been, you know, belittled. She's been yelled at. She's been, like, shoving marbles in her mouth and all of this stuff. And finally, like, he's actually treating her nicely and dancing with her, which is, like, an extra step. And she's like, Mm, I just want this to be my life. And, like, I want to continue dancing and having this. And and it kind of, like, gets called back to in the end when she's like, we were pleasant together. It's like, well, up to this point, they obviously weren't. But... Right now they they kind of are, but like that validation from someone you respect because obviously she respects him, otherwise she wouldn't have showed up to his place. Yeah, for the lessons to begin with. It's also really interesting because I always think that my white knight is the end of the act one in 
music man and i always think i could have danced all night is the end of act one of my fair lady mm-hmm. and that neither of them are i mean it's like yorktown also in hamilton like you just assume true that's the end of act one and then you get to nonstop. you're like oh this is act one <laughs> <laughs> so now because she's said a couple words correctly she's ready to go out on the town and <laughs> they they dress her up and like like we said they go to the amazing ascot race course and have this wonderful scene in which they're trying to they're trying to see if she can pull off what this whole thing is which is can she exist among the upper class i just want to say also that i love how like the way that ascot gavotte is written it's like this very sort of staccato um everyone do that don't say yeah. 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 they pronounce it like yeah like, <laughs> that's also great but it's Kind of the same exact style that's used in Evita to represent the upper class. Oh, you're so right. <laughs> There's this one conception of the upper class in musical theater writers. And it is staccato. Yeah. Oh, that's my kind of humor. Maybe six other people will think it's funny and I'm so happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> What's really cool about Eliza, though, is that while her accent is okay at this point, She's still her, like we said. She still has this beautiful heart and is so loving that everyone is immediately smitten by her. No one more so than Freddie Einsford Hill, also known as the boring boy toy. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering where you were going to go with that. <laughs> she accidentally, at the end of it, says, come on, Dova movie, bloom and arse. But at that point, it just makes him love her more. And so that evening, he shows up to declare his love and he sings on the street where you live. Now, it this is the first of a couple times that he sings on the street where you live, which is one of the great Broadway standards of all time. But I th- I kind of want to see the production of My Fair Lady where every time he sings it, he's like a little bit more drunk <laughs> because he's like so upset about her not not being with him. So, like, the last time is just like, I have often walked. (laughs) And also because he's seeing and hearing things, so it would make a lot of sense if you were drunk. The pavement never moved under my feet before, but maybe it does now because I can't stay upright. (laughs) Because I am sloshed. It's like, are those trees purple? Are there birds everywhere? It's because you're drunk. (laughs) I I buy into this now. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. And I can't remember. Does someone send him away? Um, Mrs. Pierce enters the door and she's basically like, what do you want? And he's like, oh, is Miss Doolittle here? And she's like, I'll go see. And he's like, don't worry. Take your time. I just want to drink in the street, which is ridiculous. (laughs) Um, And then she comes back and she's like, she doesn't want to see anyone. And he's like, that's okay. I'll just stay here (laughs) like a creeper. And then and it's really funny in like the second act when she comes when Eliza comes out and he's just like still there singing. The he's same still there. Song. Like, has he been there for two days? Yeah. Just, <laughs> he's just never left. Have, still drinking. Has he showered? <laughs> <laughs> Great way to meet your crush. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a, it's a perfect musical ladies. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So then we leave Freddie and Eliza is, she's a skyrocketed man. She's just, you know, racing toward that finish line of really becoming a a true lady, my fair lady, in fact. (laughs) 
And so now she's getting ready for the embassy ball. Please tell me, what did did you see Lauren Ambrose or did you see Lara Benanti? I actually saw both because I went twice. Out a girl. <laughs> I saw Benanti. Okay. And what did what did her dress look like? Oh my for god! The embassy ball. I could not care because her necklace was way better. (laughs) Fascinating. It was like a pretty woman moment necklace that the pretty moment. It was a pretty woman moment musical. Oh, my God. It was a pretty pretty woman moment necklace that the pretty woman musical didn't have. There we go. I'm there. They didn't do the necklace moment in the Pretty Woman musical? I'm not sure, but they did, but it was like not as grand of a necklace. Beautiful. Yeah. I don't think her Embassy Waltz dress was as pretty as her Ascot Gavotte dress. Mm. But her necklace was, first of all, giant. It's very much like the one in the movie where it like covers her whole neck, but I think it goes like even further down onto her chest. And it was extremely shiny. <laughs> like blinding the people in, in the Lincoln Center. Yeah, it was wonderful. I was so impressed by that. <laughs> now, speaking of Audrey Hepburn in the film and that iconic look, this would probably be a good moment to talk about how Julie Andrews, you know, originated the role of Eliza Doolittle on Broadway. And then Jack Warner financed the film version himself passed on Julie Andrews because he felt that she wasn't a big enough star and instead went to Audrey Hepburn. Now, of course, the great poetic justice and all of that is that at the Academy Awards that year, Julie Andrews ended up winning Best Actress because she starred in Mary Poppins. So after all is said and done, she gets up to accept her Oscar for Mary Poppins and thanks Jack Warner <laughs> for passing on her <laughs> for My Fair Lady. And that's why she's a boss. Oh, it must hurt even more that it came from Disney. <laughs> Warner Brothers. <laughs> right? And like So true. Disney waited. Like she was pregnant when they first gave her the offer and she's like, oh, sorry, I can't do this. And Disney like put it on hold to wait for Julie Andrews because... They, they were like, like, she's it. She is going to be a film star. Like, who are yeah. you, Jack Warner? Seriously. Practically perfect in every way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I heard that Audrey Hepburn threw a fit when she found out that she was going to be dubbed. Oh, but- that's true. That's the other thing is that Audrey Hepburn was cast, I guess, with the knowledge that she was going to be singing the role and then wasn't told until later that she would be dubbed. Yeah, and I think she sings five lines in the movie. <laughs> and if you listen very closely, you can tell. She's not that bad. I think she's just not a soprano. No, no. I mean, she sings Moon River in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Like, oh, she yeah. she can carry a tune. But she's dubbed, you know, for all the soprano stuff by Marnie Nixon, who was the great Hollywood dubber. <laughs> Did she have a weird face or something? <laughs> <laughs> like, what she's not unfortunate looking at all. She's yeah. not. That's what I thought. But she's she just kind of got pigeonholed as this Kathy Selden in in Hollywood and was the voice of everybody. Okay, so they go to the embassy ball and we think that like the gig is up because there's this Hungarian (laughs) phonetician who I I guess that's a job and his name's Zoltan Karpathy. These names. Am I saying this correctly? I don't even remember. So he seems like very suspicious of her because he doesn't know who she is and he wants to figure out where she's from. 
and Higgins is like, yeah, go on, go dance with her. And so that's how the first act ends. And we leave intermission thinking the gig's up. This guy has found out that she's a fake. Well, in the movie, intermission's before the ball. Like you see her in her ball gown in Higgins' house. Oh, right, right, right. That's true. Happens. That's also how they do it in the revival. Because Oh, really? Um, and then and I heard like people online were like, wow, she has to sit in that ball gown all through intermission. <laughs> that necklace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but they do this thing where they um because orchestra has their orchestra pit the whole time. Um, has been there, you know, no one really pays much attention to them, unfortunately, because they're the orchestra. But then sure. when the curtain opens, now the orchestra is on stage. So you have like a quote unquote live orchestra for the ball. So you can. That's it. sweet. Um, That's a great choice. Yeah. And it's also funny because if you're close enough, if you're sitting close enough to be able to look into the pit, they replace the like director with a TV. Uh, for, thought, for a cutoff or two. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it, I feel like the intermission placement is interesting as well because like in the movie for example you see Carpathy dancing with Eliza and then you see all these people whispering down the line as Eliza's dancing with the prince and then the whispering gets to Henry Higgins and he laughs and so it's like very obvious that they're not in trouble she's still dancing with the prince Um, and so like I guess it depends how you want to play that in the show and what tone you want to end on But I think it's also interesting because up until now, the problem of the the show has been like, can we teach Eliza to speak correctly Mm -hmm. so that she can pass for a duchess or a princess or, you know. But then now it's like, well, it's act two and we've solved a problem. (laughs) Like the problem's done. Like, what are we going to do now? And, And you did it. If you just listened to you did it, which we haven't actually covered yet, um, like you haven't mentioned it yet. If you just listen to it, it sounds very celebratory, very triumphant. But Eliza doesn't have a part in it. And it's also no. interesting just watching what the director does with Eliza during this scene. Because now it's like, okay, this story has shifted. And it's no longer about how she speaks or learning how to speak anymore. I love the idea of starting Act 2. And it's almost like a new show where, like you said, she has completed this task. You know, they've all quote unquote, gotten what they've wanted from act one in almost an into the woods type of way. And now what? Mm-hmm. Right. And the fact is, is that Eliza isn't really given any credit for what happened at the ball, that it's all about Higgins. It's about what a genius they were enabled enabled to fool everyone. And that really takes its toll on on our leading lady. She's still her. So she doesn't want to feel like she's fooled anyone is what I'm getting at. Hmm. I didn't really think of it that way. I thought she just wanted acknowledgement for the work that she had put in. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. I didn't really think about it in a way of that they're fooling people and that that would be something she objected to. Hmm. I mean, but I, I just putting myself in that place, I feel like there would be this sense of, boy, I really, I really showed them that I'm, uh, I'm better than I actually am. And then there would be a sadness to that. Hmm. That's interesting because um, George Bernard Shaw said that as part of his play, he wanted to prove that like class could be taught and no one is inherently better better than anyone else. Yeah. So coming from that perspective, 
I feel like I'd be so proud of myself. I would be like, someone thought I was a princess. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's cute. And I, I get that too. I, to, I, I, I see that. I've been to like plenty of events in LA where I've come away feeling down on myself maybe because I, uh, how do I want to say this? I don't even know if I want to say this. Um, where I felt gross for like fe- feeling the need to play the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt disingenuous. Or I came away feeling like I'll never fit in because I'm only just pretending. Like it's either way, it's a complex feeling, but it's still her identity that they're playing with. Mm-hmm. And act two is when we get into the nitty gritty about what does that mean? Mm-hmm. She packs up and leaves the house. And like we said, she finds good old Freddie, who's still out on the street. And he says that he loves her. She says, shut up and show me. And this is actually, in my opinion, the best song in the show. <laughs> Why is that? Because it's so active. She has learned everything and it all just comes pouring out of her where it's like enough talk, enough of all of this pretense. If this is what you want, then do something about it. And in many ways, she's the perfect one to be saying that because she went out and did something about what she wanted. I can also Mm -hmm. see that with um, your view of how she feels after the ball where she feels like, she doesn't really want to be putting on this face and like saying these pretty words. She's like, I'm tired of words. Like, let's just yeah. show our emotions and show our feelings. Like, do you actually feel the things you feel? Or are you just putting on a front like everyone else at the ball? Yeah. Is this just this like stupid facade where you say the right words and in, in the right way with the right tone and the right vowels and then everything's beautiful? Yeah. I also think it's such an unexpected number coming from her and just like from any female lead really in at this time I was shocked um, when I saw it <laughs> yeah really it was just such a like outpouring of emotion I guess and it's not like she has um just you wait earlier which is like everything builds up to that Higgins has always treated her terribly so of course she would be like I imagine you dying but like she's just had this super emotional scene um it's like a very aggressive number almost yeah And I think this comes through more in Shaw's play, where how the farther up you go in terms of class standing, the more limited you are. And Mm -hmm. when she's asking Henry Higgins in the scene before, like, oh, what's to become of me? What can I do now? You've like left me with no options. And he's like, oh, you can do whatever you want. You can like marry a guy. And that's like essentially the only option left to her. And she's like, well, I might have sold flowers, but I never sold myself. And it's like she isn't allowed to do all the things she's done before. And it it is kind of interesting how that happens where she theoretically has a better life now. She like has nicer clothes. She has access to housing and like a bathroom and all that stuff. But she doesn't really have any options anymore. Whereas like before when she was on the street, she could kind of do whatever she wanted because no one cared about her. That's fascinating. I didn't even think about that. But you're so right. Now you have these like golden handcuffs. Yeah. And so I guess like also with this song, it's like, let's just do it like screw society. Let's just do what we want to do. That's right. She she just keeps saying over and over again in that scene, what's to become of me? I forgot about that. Now let's talk about Higgins. How would you describe where he is at this point? Having, you know, 
he did it. He did everything that he wanted. He really, really, really did it. And now what? Well, it appears that he just doesn't know why Eliza left. <laughs> it's, it's completely beyond his comprehension. Um, I love a hymn to him. I think it might be my favorite number. I especially like the verse where he asks Pickering every line where he's like, he's like, would you be mad if I didn't send you flowers? And Pickering was like, excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Just like completely like unrelated things that he's asking Pickering. And I absolutely love it. Misogynistic, of course, but like viewing that like satirically. Now, when you saw this revival, the last time I saw this show was a kind of an intimate version where there were only eight people in the whole cast. Mm. Wow. And so a lot of people were playing a lot of roles and it was lovely. It was like on a smaller stage in San Diego. But this was also pre-2018. And I can't remember if people were still laughing at him to him. Were people laughing at it or were they just uncomfortable? Gosh, I don't know. I was laughing. Yeah. I don't know if people were necessarily laughing, but I don't think it was necessarily discomfort. Well, I mean, these are things that would have been laugh lines in the 50s. Right. You know? Um, I do think the part with Pickering is funny because Pickering's just trying to do his own thing. And, and (laughs) And also later when he, like, ends the song... And then Mrs. Pierce walks in and he's like, wait, I have a woman here. And then he starts singing again to Mrs. Pierce. Like, I think that part is funny. um, And that did get laughs. But I don't know about like the actual content of the rest of the song. I don't know. I I like thinking of this in terms of Higgins being being an egomaniac. Mm -hmm. He's trying to have people agree with him, you know. But ultimately what he's saying is, And it's what he's been saying from the get-go, which is, if everybody were more like me, then this world would be a better place. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And the minute that he meets someone who doesn't think like him, it completely throws him off his game. He doesn't understand. And Eliza, who is as strong and and opinionated, but also driven as she is, it, it throws him for a complete loop. Right. I definitely think it's a comedy piece, but I guess the difference is, like, if in the original production, people, like... We're laughing with him. Now we're just laughing at him because we're like, wow, you dumbass. What is wrong with you? Well, and it certainly doesn't play to the the romance of it either because at this point we're nearing the end of the show and you hear him sing a song like this and we're like, yeah, Eliza, go back to him. He sounds like a great idea. (laughs) Speaking of the looking for validation, he decides to go to his mom's house and... (laughs) man, do I love the women who play this role. Like this actress who plays Mrs. Higgins, she's the one whose dressing room you want to visit and just have her tell you stories about theater, about who she's worked with, about what she's seen. Even if she doesn't have that big of a resume, you know she's going to be an entertaining lady. I think she's like just such a badass. And so he goes He goes to mommy to ask her advice. And lo and behold, who's there at her house but Eliza? Eliza sings yet another song that kind of puts him in his place without you, which is, a, which is great. It's such a satisfying scene 
where she's just like, oh, let's sit and talk. And he's like, I taught you that. And it's like, yes. And now she's <laughs> and, and then like his mother leaves. And, like, and she's like, I recommend you stick to two topics, your health and the weather, which is like exactly what he had told Eliza at the ASCOP Devot. So it's just like, it's such a satisfying bit of turnaround. This is probably the most feminist scene in the entire musical. <laughs> Which is great because it's coming out of the most misogynistic song in the whole musical. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Higgins is kind of left alone. He's had probably the two women he's ever he's been closest to in his life really hand it to him. And as he walks home, he speaks things I've grown accustomed to her face, which is really, you know, the softening of the patriarchy. We see Henry Higgins being a little less certain about everything that he's been so certain about. Mm-hmm. I've grown accustomed to her face is not the best compliment in the world, but I guess coming from Henry Higgins. <laughs> Big step forward. <laughs> Do you think this is a romantic song? I think it's supposed to be in the musical. I think how the revival tried to spin it, which... I don't necessarily know if this came across because there's not too much you can do with this song. But Mm -hmm. is that like as much as he's changed Eliza, Eliza has also changed him. For sure. It's not necessarily in a romantic way. It's just like his way of life is different now. And he is possibly grown as a person. And yet the language is so romantic, you guys. (laughs) Her face, her smile, the way she says hello. (laughs) I guess that's the question with, like, does this strengthen or weaken the characters of the story compared to the play? Because the play basically ends after they visit his mother. If this were Mm -hmm. to follow the play's ending, it would end right after Without You. But it adds on this extra two scenes. I feel like I would like the show better if it ended on I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. Me too. Because, you know, like, how at the end of La La Land, they aren't together but they're both sort of like happy with where they are and they realize that there's a gratitude yeah and i feel like it it's kind of like that feeling at the end if Mm -hmm. they had ended with this song Mm -hmm. yeah i agree he realizes he's fond of her while also recognizing that there's no way she's coming back and for better or worse that's how he's left I mean, if this show were written today, I would definitely feel like, you know, like the last scene serves no purpose but to hint at romance and it's absolutely stupid. Um, But I guess like since it's set like a century ago, um, it's also kind of realist. Just like she has nowhere to go. I mean, she could be with Freddie. Right. But Freddie is also broke. So... Yeah. Like she's not a she's not a dumb girl in love is the idea. <laughs> yeah, that's the funny line. So, it's like as soon as I can support Freddie, it's not as soon as Freddie can support. Right. Um. So she's like, I'm gonna be a go getter. Well, we've talked about the ending at nauseum. How do you feel about this show? Like, where where do we where do you end with this show? It's still an enjoyable show despite its failings, and I think you know if you get the right director, or just you know gender swap it or something, then. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely promising. I think it's an interesting tra- trajectory for the show because 
10 years ago, we would have said that it's one of the all-time greats, that it will be done forever. You would say, it's an Oklahoma. It's a My Fair Lady. It will keep on going and going and going. And I honestly don't know that anymore. In five to 10 years, people might not be doing My Fair Lady at all. I have the opportunity to go talk to a lot of students. And (laughs) to be perfectly honest, most of them aren't interested in this type of story. I can totally see why that would be the case because, well, also I had no history or personal connection to Oklahoma. And when I saw the 2019 (laughs) revival, I thought it was the worst crap I had ever seen in my entire life. I told Christine that if they didn't serve cornbread and chili during intermission, I would have probably left. Oh, my God. (laughs) Tell the truth. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) And people love it, but I think, like, if you've never seen the original before, like, it's just very hard to swallow today. Like, the context is incredibly important. But also, back to My Fair Lady, um, even with this revival being pretty interesting, I tend to still categorize it with chick flick musicals. Like, Mm. we have this one friend who is a big fan of Waitress and Anastasia and, like, those musicals and she loves my fair lady and I was kind of like that makes sense like (laughs) that tracks (laughs) yeah so I still kind of consider it like that even though I so believe that it's not a romance yeah I appreciate that this show can bring new conversation and new ambiguity to maybe the rom-com musical theater genre but at the same time it's still so full of men and their vantage points that I don't find myself running to the theater to see it. I agree with that. It can be a feminist show. Is it the most feminist show, though? Is it like the show that you would pick to be the feminist yeah, show? Like it's, not, <laughs> it's not that show. And it, it wasn't written to be that either. But whether or not My Fair Lady holds up, I think just probably depends on how much people still want to hear the music. Yeah, you're absolutely right. My guess, this is just me guessing, but I think My Fair Lady at some point will exist only in concert form or staged reading Mm. events. I I don't really foresee it being as grandly produced as it was on Broadway a couple years ago. I guess it also depends how popular the movie continues to be. Mm. Uh, True. and, And the movie obviously is like definitely played more for romance. So it maybe will sort of stray from that. Because it it has to yeah. <laughs> One last thing I kind of wanted to talk about was have yes, you looked at the album artwork on the original Broadway cast album. You mean like the caricature? Yeah, the puppets. So that was an Al Hirschfeld cartoon, but it's supposed to be Shaw at the top. That's like kind of playing God, who is puppeting. Oh, cute. Um, Higgins, who is puppeting Eliza. Um, and I thought that oh. was an interesting thing to put on the cover of a musical in the 50s where it's expected that every musical is a romance because it already speaks to like a very controlling power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And also it's kind of interesting because it it's like, well, Higgins thinks he's the puppet master, but Tat jokes on him. He's actually just a character in a story or something. <laughs> Totally. But but yeah, I thought that was just like an interesting move on their part to be like, yeah, we're not going to have these two people standing across from each other, like on equal standing or, you know, something like that. It's 
it it seems almost commentary than I think the show feels. Yeah, it's probably like an homage to Shaw, who had died like fairly recently because he like, you know, hated classism and was kind of like people who are rich and think they are better than other people are stupid because they're also just caught in the game. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why it's Shaw controlling um, Higgins. And also Higgins looks very mean on that cover. (laughs) I'm I'm staring at her right now. (laughs) I mean, first of all, like he looks like squinty and mean, but he also reminds me of the laughing emoji face where your eyes are (laughs) two triangles. (laughs) Our little pizzas. That one. <laughs> I, I do think that the most interesting thing about this show is that it, it is a relationship based on power dynamics and the exploration of where that power comes from. Does it come from within? Does it come from external structures that we've put in place in society? I think it's all really fascinating and something that isn't often explored in musical theater. And I think when we really own it as that, the show is pretty unique and pretty special. Mm-hmm. And thank you, ladies, for being willing to to explore it with me. (laughs) As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast for more great content. And while you're at it, go and check out our T Public store where we have great designs based on favorite episodes, past and present. Ladies, how can we follow you and what you're up to? Yeah, so our podcast is Bottomless Broadway, which you can find on any podcast platform, including probably the one that you're listening to this on. And you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Bottomless B-Way. Thank you again, ladies. I'm so appreciative. And everybody out there, you know what? I've grown accustomed to your face. (laughs) Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.